Hello, everyone. Welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I'm your host, CEO of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. For today's podcast, we're featuring an interview with Chief Operating Officer of CanArctic Inuit Networks and Special Advisor to UltraSafe Nuclear Corporation, Madeline Redfern. But before we dive into that, I'll have a quick discussion with CJI fellow and Energy Security Forum Manager, Joe Kalman, about the news stories affecting global energy security this week. How are things, Joe? Things are great, Kelly. You know, uh, it's starting to get nice and bright and sunny here in Calgary, and this is uh, entering summer season. It's still around zero, but we call it spring. was hanging out in the patios this last weekend. But yeah, also a lot of really interesting news on the radar here. So uh, where do you want to start? Uh, let's start off with an interesting story of a conflict between the U.S. defense establishment and offshore wind targets, which might have some significant implications for power supply on the United States' east coast. So on Monday, Bloomberg reported on maps released by the United States Department of Defense showing areas off of Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina that it considers, quote, highly problematic. Uh, These areas overlap with four of six potential uh, offshore wind lease areas, putting the future of offshore wind projects planned in the area into question. You know, the law of unintended consequence, right, which adds to growing complications surrounding the Biden administration's push to deploy, listen to this, folks, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2030. Global supply chain constraints have hit wind turbine manufacturers across the globe, leading to billions in losses, even as the manufacturers increase prices to their consumers. Meanwhile, other U.S.-specific problems further aggravated the issue, including the Jones Act, which created a, creates a series of absurd rules requiring American-made and operated ships for the installation of wind turbines, since the regulatory body considers the seafloor a U.S. port under the Act. In short, the unstoppable force of climate ambitions is meeting the immovable object of dysfunctional government. Sorry, folks, it's just the way it is. Whether the U.S. can meet its renewable targets may be a question of whether the U.S. can overcome its larger governance challenges. Mm -hmm. What's next? Uh, Next up, let's get into Chile and uh, copper supplies. So on Monday, Chile's Ministry of Environment announced that the Chilean government had approved a $3 billion investment in the Anglo-American controlled uh, Los Bronques copper mine. The outlook for this environmental permit was closely followed by mining watchers as an indication of the government's relative priorities of boosting copper output versus environmental concerns. Uh, This followed a rejection of Anglo-Americans' previous application for the same mine in May 2022. Chile's Ministry of Environment approved the new application due to a series of, quote, demanding environmental conditions attached to the uh, new um, application. This comes as Chile continues its work to draft a new constitution to replace the current Pinochet-era constitution. Uh, The new constitution is expected to expand environmental protections. However, leftist Chilean President Gabriel Boric is also looking to promote Chilean economic growth as Chile's transition metal resources like copper and lithium become increasingly important to the global economy, no doubt. Um, Boric is expected to announce its long-awaited lithium development strategy later this week, which could see Chile become an even more important player in the crucial battery metal by promoting extraction from the massive Salars in Chile's north. 
Bork was invited by Chinese President Xi Jinping to visit Beijing in 2023, which can be expected to be paired with larger agreements on cooperation and economic development between Chile and the world's second largest economy. Meanwhile, the Chilean state itself is seeking to set up public-private partnerships to more directly benefit from the metals bonanza as state-owned companies Cadelco and Anami seek joint ventures for lithium and copper extraction. Last up, let's quickly discuss an interesting news story out of Bangladesh, which provides a bit of insight into the uh, fascinating and complex geopolitics surrounding nuclear power plants in the uh, new post-Ukraine world. Uh, So on Monday, Bangladesh and Russia came to an agreement regarding a delayed 110 million U.S. dollar repayment for a Russian loan for the construction of the Ruper nuclear plant. For context, the uh, nuclear plant, the Bangladesh uh, Ruper nuclear plant is a project decades in the making, which saw Russia, China and South Korea cooperating in providing financial and technical aid for construction, fuel supply and labor force development. The 2.4 gigawatt nuclear plant is expected to come online later this year. Uh, Bangladesh, like other South and Southeast Asian countries, has been hit hard by recently volatile energy markets and is looking forward to guaranteed stable nuclear energy supply. The largest figure in the project is, of course, Russia's Rosatom, which is the leading nuclear energy company on the globe. Uh, Rosatom was paid with loans provided by both Russian and Chinese banks. Uh, The wrench in the scheme was when Russia was booted from the SWIFT payment system in 2022 as part of the sanctions packages against Russian banks. Since then, Bangladesh has been unable to transfer its debt payments to Russia. Soon after, Russia issued a mandate for Bangladesh to repay the loan in Russian rubles. At the time, the ruble was in freefall and the Russian government was looking for a way to boost demand for the currency. Moreover, in late May, Russia and China came to a very important agreement at a three-day bilateral summit with Vladimir Putin saying, as, and I quote, we are in favor of using Chinese yuan for settlement between Russia and the countries of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, unquote. On Monday, Nikkei Asia reported that Bangladesh was using this pathway to repay Russia in yuan. This has two benefits for Bangladesh. First, China is a much more important trading partner, which means the yuan reserves are more useful and less risky, and second, it helps the country in sidestepping sanctions. More importantly, however, this indicates that the Chinese concept of an alternative reserve currency may be picking up steam as more countries look to ways to avoid American financial sanctions. Further, it emphasizes the position that Russia has put itself in through this war as a junior partner of China. That is a a theory that I subscribe to myself. Uh, Russia is increasingly having to go through Chinese channels to do business which gives China a certain level of control over Russian actions. I'll just add, Joe, uh, one further development on the nuclear side. The uh, Germans shut down the last three of their nuclear power plants three days ago. Absolute lunacy. I was reading an article this morning that those three nuclear power plants supply power to 10 million German homes, a quarter of the population. I know that's off the topic of, of, of and a very interesting development, Joe, I, I, about what you brought up there. Uh, I just wanted to make people aware that that had happened uh, if they didn't know that. Um, you know, this whole, I, I talked at length last week about these attempts by, in the multipolar, or sorry, the, the burgeoning great power competition and, and spheres of influence that are dragging away from the a bipolar world that we we lived in for 75 years. 
Um, and one of the keys to that, of course, is currency, right? And, um, you know, the United States has been the reserve currency since the war, Second World War, that is. And uh, I've, I've always felt that it would continue to be that. But, you know, you, you, if, the, if those spheres of influence and, and uh, areas of uh, mutual interest, such as China and Russia, coupled with developing nations, start doing business different ways, you know, it opens up a whole bunch more uh, geopolitical friction and uh, potential uh, volatility in, in markets, not only currencies, but uh, commodities as well. So very interesting, Joe. Thanks for digging those up. Not a problem at all, Kelly. And uh, just uh, my regular reminder, please subscribe to our newsletter and you can subscribe to it on our website. So, uh, you know, a lot of interesting stories and uh, delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday. Great. Let's switch over to my conversation with Madeline Redfern. For today's interview, recorded April 4th, 2023, we discussed the involvement of Indigenous and Northern communities in the development and installation of small modular nuclear reactors in the Arctic, as well as other infrastructure challenges in the Arctic, and what social challenges might still have to be overcome. Joining me today from Iqaluit, Nunavut, is Madeline Redfern. Madeline is the co-chief executive officer at CanArctic Inuit Networks, a board member of National Indigenous Economic Development, an advisor to Canadian Nuclear Laboratories, a great friend of the CJI, and a special advisor to UltraSafe Nuclear Corporation. Madeline is also a former mayor of Iqaluit. Madeline, thanks so much for coming on the Energy Security Cube podcast. Thanks, Kelly. Let's start off with some background information on your involvement in the energy space. Um, how, when did you start to become involved with nuclear energy and why did that happen? Well, I became interested in energy in general when I was mayor of Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut, and I was also the president of the Nunavut Association Municipalities, and all our 25 communities are 100% diesel dependent, but I was also watching um, you know, neighboring community of Pangertung, its power plant burnt to the ground. Santa Kilowack's power generator went out in the middle of winter and had to have a new uh, generator flown in by Hercules. Rankin Inlet was going through rolling power outages, as was Cambridge Bay. Ecaluit uh, power rates increased by over 30% uh, in my first term as mayor. So energy was absolutely, you know, one of those critical issues that uh, not only my community, but the other communities, you know, were facing. Uh, and so I wanted to start looking at, you know, what were the energy solutions? So looked into renewables, solar, wind, hydro, recognizing that a hydro project had been proposed in the past for Echaluit. And it had stalled for a number of reasons, very poor uh, community engagement, uh, no engagement with the municipality, which shocked me, but also is the potential cost. And as politics, you know, have been evolving with the federal government committing to getting off our communities off of diesel, originally by 2030, which was, you know, never going to happen, but then amended to net, net zero program by 2050. And so um, wanted to really understand what the true solutions were and began to learn quickly that solar and wind weren't going to be able to uh, get our communities off of diesel. If anything, it would entrench diesel. 
So then, you know, the options really had to be either hydro, but then when I was mayor on my second term, the city of Iqaluit faced a, a water uh, emergency because we don't have enough precipitation. So then began to realize that maybe even hydro, you know, is, is not going to be a full solution and looked at the geothermal, looked at hydropower, and then small modular reactors started to, you know, become um, a potential viable solution. And so looked, you know, into that and began to realize from understanding the physics and where they are in the development and with the government of Canada's uh engagements with our northern communities that this was something definitely that we needed to consider um not only for the for Iqaluit, but for other rural remote communities across the country there's 177 indigenous communities 100 diesel dependent and that's right from you know from the west coast to the east coast and the north um and 300 of those communities are partially diesel dependent so we need to be finding the energy solutions that work and was pretty excited when the federal government created the National Advisory Council on, on uh, uh, for Indigenous Peoples on Small Modular Reactors, because I'd done a lot of work to date, you know, trying to at least inform myself to be able to have an informed discussion and then to facilitate, you know, those similar discussions in our community so that we can make informed decisions. So, um, Madeline and I have known each other for quite a while. We were on a panel together in Toronto last uh, winter. And then last week we were both attending the and spoke at the Arctic Energy Resources Symposium in Calgary. And one of the major issues which came up repeatedly in the symposium was the difficulty of building infrastructure of any kind in the Arctic and the resulting impact on remote Indigenous communities. And I'll just add that as we got geared up to do this podcast, the connectivity for Madeline from the north was not easy. And I'd like you to expand on that. And what kind of impacts have you seen in in the communities from these restrictions on not just energy access, but all like infrastructure itself? This is this, you know, I, I, I this is called energy security cubed. And we talk a lot about energy security on a macro existential global issue. This is a micro energy security is a is a you can call it micro macro. It's a giant issue for people in the north. I, I, would you expand on that? And how do you see the future unfolding here before we get into some more depth about not only SMRs, but micro modular reactors, which I think is something you could talk about? Well, it's important for people to understand that uh, more then 10 of our communities are um, have power plants that are beyond their operating life. So most of the diesel plants have a 40-year lifespan. And so when the Pangertang power plant burnt down, it burnt down in winter. It burnt down, you know, when we're talking about temperatures of minus 40 or colder. So as similar, you know, problems in, in Rankin Inlet when one of the gensets, you know, uh, stopped working effectively and the rolling power outages, I mean, people's pipes were freezing. You can't run your furnace, your electricity, you know, without power. And so it is dire. I mean, that's, I was surprised to hear 
um, that uh, the government of Nunavut has detailed evacuation plans for at least 10 of our communities if the power plants go down and cannot be repaired in, in a timely manner. Because they're, you know, the power plant in, in Panutung, uh, the government of Nunavut had to use the Antonov to bring the new power generator to Iqaluit. And then they had to use the Sikorsky helicopter to fly it. And they were unsure if they could actually get the new generator in because in winter, we don't have road access. We don't have ship access. So for smaller communities like Chesterfield Inlet or Whale Cove or Grease Fjord, you can't get the Sikorsky, you know, in, in there. Um, and because literally you have five kilometer winds there's no fly into there because the the landing strip is right near a mountain. So these are very, you know, in critical, critical pieces of infrastructure where people's lives are at risk, Kelly. So at that conference a couple of weeks ago, you were on a panel discussing the possibility that nuclear microreactors could play a role in providing reliable electric electricity and perhaps heat the Arctic communities. Um, how, and, and I'd like you to expand on that, because I until you were the panel that you participated in, I was not aware of micromodular reactors at all. I, you know, I have my own concept of, uh, of SMRs and, okay, equality, possibly, you got, what's the population, 12,000 people? 8,000, but we always have approximately 2,000 non-residents here. In, in all the time. So, you, you know, a, a SMR, big as a gymnasium, you know, or a little bigger than that possibly for a community like that but you get to the smaller communities there's the economies of scale just don't work but when when i saw the the presentation on micro modular reactors i'm thinking you know even smaller communities that have a, a justifiable need for them this might work but there's concerns around local buy-in and i know that you know we have we, we've talked a lot about uh, nuclear power on our podcasts especially with Jackie Hornwig at the Brilliant Energy Institute. And it seems that like in Ontario, Pickering, Darlington, Bruce, as you get closer to the reactors, there's more buy-in um, because people understand that it's part of their life. But do, do you feel there's challenges and stem and worries by your local communities about the safety and environmental impacts of the, nu of the nuclear, en of nuclear energy? Could you expand on that, Madeline? And you know, I, I think for everybody's interest, there's these vagaries out there of understanding of the security and, and safety levels. And I'm sure you people talk about, the folks around this issue talk about this all the time. So what's important to understand is that there are micro-modular reactors of about 500 kilowatts that are being proposed. Small modular reactors, you know, ranging from one megawatt all the way to 500 megawatts. So, uh, uh, it's important that there is a really quite, you know, diverse uh, range. Iqaluit right now would need a 25 megawatt uh, um, solution, but that was only for the production of, of electricity. Once you start talking about the production of, of heat and possibly, you know, garbage incinerators, right. uh, there's a De Beers mine is nearby and that they have a Chitliak diamond deposit. Well, you can't mine diamonds on diesel or solar or wind, you need a, a significant energy solution. So um, what I can tell you is that the engagement that uh, NRCAN organized uh, in my last term as mayor just before 2020 is that there were elected officials and community members from across the territory and everyone was interested. 
It didn't mean that they were against it, but it also, you know, they just said, we want to learn more. And the recommendations of those that participated said, you know, we want to be engaged early uh, and frequently. And everyone is interested in solutions. Um, and I can tell you from you know, the engagements that we've had here in Nakhalawid and in Rankin Inlet and conversations that I've had with various ministers and community leaders is that there is a growing awareness that uh, SMRs exist and that they may be a solution for our region and our communities. And not just, you know, for potentially a reactor, a small modular reactor in a small community of 400, but it may be possible to have a reactor, um, you know, put in a larger community and then have a transmission line to be able to connect the communities. And when um, we look at the Kivilik region, which has a proposed hydrofiber link, well, that is 1,002 kilometers of transmission line on Muskeg, which is highly unstable ground, um, and that diesel would be the backup. Um, and so there is potentially, you know, a business case to be had and at least an assessment of uh, SMR network being a solution because it could probably come in less than a third of the proposed $3.2 billion cost of the of the hydrofiber link. And that's not to, you know, to dictate that the region or the communities must choose SMRs, but I do think that people want good, honest, comparative analysis as to what those options are. Look at the environmental impact, you know, transmission lines, you know, can sometimes go through caribou cabin grounds. Uh, we've seen in Rankin Inlet, there's a wind turbine that's, you know, fallen and, and rotting on the ground as in Cambridge Bay, no remediation um, responsibility. So people are absolutely, without a doubt, open and interested in getting good information, um, the comparative analysis on the environmental aspects, but also the safety considerations. And we're lucky in Canada because we have a really robust regulatory system around nuclear and that the federal government and its agencies are working with the industry, you know, in its these SMR developments like Ultrasafe Nuclear Corporation, um, you know, being proposed at Chalk River and going through now the environmental review and approval, but also with the nuclear waste management organization, you know, determining where this, uh, the spent fuel will be kept in, you know, a permanent repository in our country. And so no SMR is going to be approved until there is, you know, um, uh, a licensed approvals that the, the reactors have been deemed safe, uh, a full plan on transportation, um, all the aspects of, you know, community engagement, Indigenous consultation, uh, potential for, you know, Indigenous uh, equity participation, and of course, the remediation and disposal plan. So we don't see that necessarily in the other industries. And people are very keen. You know, when I remember some um, counselors in Rankin Inlet saying, you know, we just want a solution. <laughs> and we yeah. want it sooner rather than later. And whether that's an SMR solution or a hydro or transmission line, they said, we just want to know that something is happening and we want to be engaged. And then ultimately, 
they'll get to decide on, on what that solution is. So I'm just thinking outside the box here a little bit and, and I'm a bit off script, but you mentioned the beers and you mentioned centralized production, uh, a new a power situation. Is, is work being done around that or are we still just talking concepts? Like, because uh, I, I think I, I understand what you're saying. You know, the, the economies of scale could be reached if you had a central position and branch transmission lines, even say between the beers and the Qualiute for instance, is that something that that is kind of even in the concept stage or what, where are we in oh, that? Oh, people are talking about it. Okay. No, no, no. The, the mining sector absolutely is looking for energy solutions. You know, even the mines that are already in production, because with the carbon tax and with the gas prices, you know, they need, and, and they need to achieve the net zero goals obligations as well. So where there's opportunities for the resource sector near our communities or even military installations, you know, we're hearing about the value and need for what's called dual purpose infrastructure or multi-purpose infrastructure. So making sure that our limited, you know, resources that we have, you know, meet the needs of more than one user. So it's important that we ensure that, you know, we consult with all the potential sort of users in and around a community or a region. And which is something that Alaska did many years ago. I was really impressed, you know, to find out that they did what was a macro micro assessment, you know, what could be an energy solution for a community in the region, and then mapped it out and, and looked at, you know, the different 16 energy solutions. And by developing effectively a strategy, they were able to unlock, you know, millions of dollars from Washington, um, rather than what we currently have, which is, you know, we've got goals about, you know, getting off of dirty, you know, um, energy sources. And we've got, you know, and funding announcement, $2 billion. Um, but we have no strategy, and we have no plans. And I can tell you for some of our northern remote communities or regions, we struggle sometimes with capacity issues, especially when we have um, our power corporations are operating in crisis mode, let alone planning mode. And so there's a big, you know, um, uh, reliance on maybe the federal government or the industry to come up with, you know, what are the potential solutions? How much, how much is it going to cost? What are the comparative analysis so that we can actually achieve it in, you know, the time frame between 2023 and 2050? And I can tell you, the older I've got, time goes by real fast. And then Boy, I've, I've, yeah, I, I, now. <laughs> I hear you. I, like every day that you, you think back to when you were a child and you couldn't, you know, it's like, are we ever going to get to tomorrow? <laughs> and I'll tell you what, tomorrow happens really fast now. Um Something that we've talked about a lot before with nuclear in, in the broad sense is labor force considerations around the world. And not, not, not unlike most industries, the nuclear labor force has been hollowed out due to retirements outweighing new entrants. And just it's just time. Um, add to that the remoteness of the Arctic. I think that sharpens labor force considerations. Is that is that the case with what you see in the future for this type of energy infrastructure and or uh, labor force writ large, Madeline? I, I think this has got to be a concern. Well, it's good to know that there are universities in Canada like McMaster and, and others that are really scaling up um, their courses around nuclear to create that workforce that's needed. 
Um, and but the small modular reactors, from what I've been told by industry, you know, on average are around um, seven, 10, 12, 14 sort of uh, workforce. And that there would be um, a need and requirement, of course, to ensure that all staff have the requisite uh, skills to be able to run um, an SMR. Uh, so that again, you know, is part of the regulatory um, uh, review process and the licensing is ensuring that there are, you know, staff who who can um, look after the facility. But uh, really, the other sort of thing that's important is the ability to be able to also monitor these SMRs, you know, remotely. Um, and a lot of people may not realize is how interconnected the energy infrastructure is to telecommunications, you know, to people and to artificial intelligence that is actually ensuring that our energy is, is used efficiently um, and, uh, and also to detect any maintenance issues or any problems and to be able to respond to that, you know, in a timely manner. So that's why we also need to see the telecommunications infrastructure built out at the same time as the energy solutions are. Very good. I, you know, I, I, and you know, you talk, we, we, we're talking about this interconnectivity and, you know, I'll just tell you folks listening that Madeline's connection is not great. Like we're, we're, we're talking and we're getting this done, but it's not perfect. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine that with, with the, in a decade, if it's not better, how you manage the security and, and connectivity of something as crucial as a, as a nuclear reactor. Like we got to get better at this and figure out ways to do that. And I, you know, I hope I'm not, uh, you know, I, I sound preachy, but Hey, it's, it is what it is. And uh, I think that the, the, the public, the greater public needs to understand if we're talking the future of the whole energy spectrum and, and critical minerals, et cetera, rare earths in Canada, they're in the North people. Like if we're going to get them developed, we need to, we need to lay the groundwork such that this can work. And I, I, I commend you, Madeline, for your stick to itiveness with this and, and uh, on, on that. And I think this is crucial. Um, we recently spoke with Chief Crystal Smith of the Heisland Nation about the Cedar LNG facility, which when built will be majority owned by the Heisland Nation with significant benefits for the local community. When we're talking about small nuclear actors, are, are we able to talk in the same breath with Indigenous communities in the North? I think that that's, that might be crucial to the development here. Well, that's what I said earlier, is that the resource sector absolutely needs energy solutions. Um, in addition with telecommunications for robotic um, mining. And again, you know, you need good connectivity for that. You also need good transportation. So the three most important critical, you know, aspects of, uh, of being able to actually um, go from an exploration phase to implementation or uh, um, development phase of a mine, you know, needs to have those three um uh, things figured out. And that's same for our communities. So we want, you know, transformative, uh, innovative, strategic investments um, that benefit our region and that we can have these energy tra telecommunications transportation solutions and also develop the resource sector where our community members can be part of that workforce. And that we see that, you know, not only these um, investments, 
you know, change our region from being one of where it's high rates of poverty to regions of, you know, of prosperity and security that is good for our people, but also good for our nation. That's a great answer. And I, and you know, I, it sounds maybe altruistic, but I think that we're making progress as a country in that regard. And, and Madeline, I want to thank you. Your, I'm going to use the word stick to um, with this file. Um, I've got to know you a bit over the last year or so. And I think that you, you and the people of the Qualiute and those around you need to be commended on keeping this out front because the government, uh, you know, I'm, I'm bad for talking down the government, but they do a lot of talking and not enough walking. And uh, uh, so keep the pressure on. Um, I know that you travel a lot, like you were, I think you mentioned you were in Alaska last week, the week before that you were out here in Calgary with us. So you must have time to read when you're on a plane or stream things. What are you looking at? What's keeping you, what's your, keeping your interest in reading these days, Madeline? Well, recently was the Auditor General's report on uh, connectivity and the fact that uh, um, I said did not uh, roll out $1.5 billion um, to improve connectivity, specifically in rural remote Canada. So I'm constantly, you know, trying to keep up with what is happening, both on the political spectrum, in the industry, in telecommunications, in energy, in, um, in transportation. Um, so it's, it's, there's always a lot to keep, you know, on top of, I think it's equally important to know what, you know, our, um, Arctic neighbors are doing in, with respect to in, in Alaska, in Greenland and Iceland, the Nordic countries, there was a woman, um, actually at Anchorage at the Arctic encounters, a Sami woman, you know, who was actually speaking about their court case, you know, regarding the impacts of the wind turbines and the harms that their people are suffering as a result, you know, because they're, they're very disruptive um, technology to their culture and, and their ability to live their traditional life and, and to herd reindeers. And, and it, was, it was interesting because, you know, I'd never heard that perspective before, you know, in so much as that uh, the need and the value to have an understanding, you know, how these technologies have played out in other regions and the benefits or the harms that the people who live near the these um, um, energy options, you know, can result from. So people are, you know, Indigenous people and, and Northerners are very, very aware about the need to learn, you know, the best lessons, but also, you know, the mistakes that have been made and so that we don't replicate them in our region either. You know, it's funny, the law of unintended consequence, right? It, you just, you know, you think you're that, you, that that solution is better overall, but sometimes the uh, cure isn't worth the malady. Madeline, thanks so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to continuing to interact with you and, and uh, see how things are going with UNSC and, and uh, the people of Equality and the North. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. 
you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgai.ca slash support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Jill Kalman, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.